today. Jesus Christ, King of Kings, can we just have a moment of peace? Can we just have a moment of peace? The same media that got everything wrong just over a week ago is now telling you what's going to happen next and why. When do you stop listening? When do you stop caring what they have to say? When do we stop bowing to the wrong kings? We have a king. So let's do, let's do a bit of history here, if we could. Roman policy viewed with utmost jealousy and distrust any association among its subjects which seemed to dilute authority to the state. The state was everything. It was all. And the secret, they thought they were secret, and nocturnal meetings of the church made them very suspicious in the eyes of the Romans. They weren't secret, but they were nocturnal because back then you didn't get Sundays off. So you had to meet when you weren't working. Well, persecution was inevitable. And it came early in the life of the church. Sometimes that persecution was stripping people of their property or their rights or their freedom. But when the leaders of the state became paranoid about these Christians, paranoid or when the leaders of the state were just driven insane by their, their own, as a rule, riddled with sexually transmitted disease, and they slowly became insane, these persecutions became far crueler. For example, Nero. Nero, here's one of the paragraphs written about what he did to Christians. Mockery of every sort was added to their deaths. Covered with the skins of beasts, they were torn by dogs and perished, or they were nailed to crosses or were doomed to the flames. These served to illuminate the night when daylight failed. Nero had thrown open the gardens for the spectacle and was exhibiting a show in a circus while he mingled among them. If you don't get what that means, he used to dip Christians in tar, nail them to trees while still alive, lighting them, and using that to light his garden parties. That was the state whenever the Christians were a very young church. And yet... He wasn't alone. Domitian, Severus, Marcus Antoninus, Decius, Diocletian, they all went against the church. They all declared the church was the enemy of the state. And each in his own way went away. Why? I mean, how many of you even knew those names? If you, if you studied history, you might have picked up on Diocletian. But the others... Maybe not so much. They set themselves up above God, but they're gone. In the mid-400s, Attila the Hun approached. The horde moved into Europe and took nation after nation, city after city, province after province. And along the way, they gave out special punishment to the Christians which is so graphic and so evil, I will not even start to describe it. And you just, if you're a Christian, you listened and you heard the rumors of the darkness of the Huns taking the cities that used to be citadels of faith, now gone, Christians slaughtered, women taken into slavery. 
Then after a surprising defeat in France, he turned toward Italy. His army rallied much faster than anybody expected, and he decided to launch an attack upon the center of Christianity, Rome. When he approached, only one man came out to oppose him. One man to approach the entire horde of the Huns. He was the bishop of Rome. And he told Attila, you do not come against God and survive. Attila, for the only time in his life, backed off. When his generals asked him, how in the world would you turn back over one man? He looked at them astonished and he said, did you not see the, the towering, shining being who stood behind him holding a sword. Only Attila evidently saw that, but it rattled him. So he pulled back. Two years later, he had forgotten his vision. He was ready now to go against Rome. He had gathered his armies, and they were bigger than ever before. They encircled the city. They had a plan, and Rome was defenseless before them. And the night before the battle... Attila got a nosebleed in the night and bled to death. The battle never took place. In the 1200s, Genghis Khan and the Mongol horde moved so quickly. No army has ever moved as quickly in the ancient days or as cruelly as Genghis Khan and the horde. They took over Russia. They set up their princes in Moscow. They crossed the Danube. They took over Hungary. They took over sections of Germany and France. They were about to take over all of Europe. I won't do a lot about how cruel they were, but here's a quote from Genghis Khan himself. The greatest happiness is to vanquish your enemies, to chase them before you, to rob them of their wealth, to see those dear to them bathed in tears, and to clasp to your bosom their wives and daughters. And that was what was happening to Europe. Churches were full as the people retreated, and their leaders declared, this is the end of the world. Armies ran before them. Princes and kings threw their crowns down and ran and hid. Churches were full, full ready to be burned to death within, within the church. And then the greatest horseman known to history as he rallied for the battle to take over Europe, fell off his horse, broke his neck, died. Years later, his grandson, Batu, most people know Genghis, they don't know Batu. Yeah, you need to study Batu. He was even worse. He led the Mongols right back. This time, they took Vienna. They took most of Rome. They took all of Hungary. They took most of Europe. And right before their last pit, uh, push, once again, Batu falls over dead. No known reason. Historians still cannot figure it out. Christians have an idea. Can we talk about the Muslim assault on Europe? Many of our children don't even know about that. But for example, Spain, Portugal, were Muslim countries. They took them. They took much of Italy. They took some of France. They took around the edges, and it looked like they were going to take it all. But they didn't. How about Hitler? Hitler looked like he was winning. I'll never forget the time Cammy and I were flying back from Scotland, landed in New York, and back in that time, you landed at one 
airport, and you had to take a taxi to the other airport to fly domestically. I'm glad they don't do that anymore. That's the way it used to be. So we're tired. We've, we get in a taxi, and the guy looks in the mirror, and he, and, he, and he wants to chat. I don't want to chat. I just flew from Scotland. It's hot in America. I'm not really interested. He started, so what do you do? So I, I, have, a, I have an option. I have a series of things I can say. You know, I'm a writer, I'm a professor, I'm a this, that, or the other. But there's one thing that normally shuts down conversation. So I went for it. I said, I'm a minister and a missionary. And he cursed. And then he said, oh, you could just call me an agnostic Jew. And I thought, all right, that's a hanging curveball. I gotta, I gotta, <laughs> I gotta swing at that. And so I said, why are you agnostic? And he said, well, the way I look at it, if there is a God, why do you let that happen to the Jews? And I looked at him and I said, why not? And the brakes were applied. <laughs> and I said, no, I want you to think. I said, why only? He said, six million Jews died. I said, why only six million? And all the cursing came again. And I said, no, think about it. Hitler was organized. We weren't. Hitler had his manufacturing base ready. We didn't. He had generals trained and ready for battle. We didn't. Our leaders were off somewhere chasing butterflies. They didn't know what was happening. And we weren't united. Whenever one of our generals would take, I'm thinking Patton here, a, a town when he wasn't supposed to because it was England's turn and Field Marshal Montgomery was supposed to take it. And they would fight among themselves like children how come Hitler all of a sudden started failing? How come he all of a sudden, he was always mad, stupid, crazy, but he actually literally went mad, stupid, crazy in his brain. What happened? How do you lose? He said, I never thought of that. And I said, something to think about. There's an invisible hand. What about the Soviet Union? I grew up knowing that we were going to come to grips with the, the Soviets in the fold de gap. Anybody remember the terms fold de gap? You soldiers or those of you that were draftable age? Absolutely no. In Germany, we were all poised for it. We were ready for it. We were building tanks for it. And in school, we had nuclear war drills. Those were the most useless things possible. Now, I understand fire drills because you can get away from fire. I understand tornado drills because you can shelter from tornadoes. But for nuclear war drills, they would have us get under our desk. <laughs> I was in the second or third grade, and I, even then I realized, number one, melanin will not stop nuclear weapons. Number two, I think they're just doing this so they know where to look for the bodies. They're under the desk. I was not an easy child to educate. <laughs> and yet I can remember being in a hotel in Indiana. We had come back to America. I was speaking in a little church in Terre Haute. And my wife and I turned on the news and saw the Soviet Union had fallen. And I looked at my wife and I said, I don't know how to feel. Who's our enemy now? We've always had an enemy. Now what happens? How is it that all through history, something has turned back the threats? 
each of which had a special hatred for Christianity. Why is it that every attempt to destroy the Bible has failed? Why is it, even when it was backed with huge supplies of money, leaders, arms, it failed? One of my favorite examples is Voltaire, a French poet who not only didn't believe in God, he, he didn't like God. It's interesting. A lot of atheists who don't believe there is a God have a special hatred for the thing they don't think exists. And so he wrote, he was very influential in France, that within a hundred years there would be no more Bibles. Voltaire died. His house became semi-derelict over the years. It became a warehouse. Years later, not knowing it was Voltaire's house, a society rented it to store their books. It was the European Bible Society. A hundred years after he wrote it, it was a Bible warehouse. I find that fascinating. Nietzsche, the great philosopher, declared God is dead. Today, Nietzsche is dead. God isn't. How does this happen? Every single time, I would respond, there is an invisible hand. There is a king who is higher than any earthly king. Brothers and sisters, it is so easy to overstate the difficulty of being a Christian. If you read Facebook, you would have thought that they were killing Christians in the streets. No, they're not. If Target says happy holidays rather than Merry Christmas, you are not being persecuted. Grow up. And if they don't let Salvation Army ring the bell there, you're not being persecuted. Grow up. Go find Salvation Army people and give them money if you want to. They're not been, they've not been banned. I told my grandsons I was in the Salvation Army Special Forces, but I didn't want to talk about it. Um, <laughs> They're, I'm telling them a lot of things they're going to have to unlearn eventually. <laughs> While truly following Christ with all of our heart, soul, and mind and strength is a, is a very demanding task, the fact is that if you cannot be a Christian in 21st century America, you can't be a Christian. We have more resources. We have a safer environment than any other generation. It is hard to put ourselves in a place of those that see the barbarians at the gate. And so what we do is we imagine they're there. We imagine they're there. I, there's a concert I always like to go see that's not coming to Nashville. I put that up on Facebook and somebody goes, oh, they're in Chicago, you ought to go there. My first thought is, I'm safer in Fallujah than I am in Chicago, which is actually true. The murder rate is higher there. And yet, what are we afraid of? We're afraid of the outsiders coming in to shoot us. We're doing a good job of that on our own. We, we, need to, we need to back off a bit. We need to calm down. We need to remember how the title King of Kings brought comfort to those who saw the real barbarians at the gates and saw the spears coming into their towns. Their church was about to go through persecution unlike anything they had ever imagined. If you had asked, they would have said they knew about persecution, but they didn't. It was coming. They weren't prepared for the upheaval that the fall of Jerusalem, the destruction of the temple would bring. 
For many, the link between Judaism and Christianity was the will of God. And the loss of Jerusalem and the temple seemed to be the same as the loss of God on the battlefield. Like God had fallen, then they were scattered. How could they gather? What would be their XP, you military people? Their exfiltration point? How could they get together so that they could safely travel? And that's when Jesus shows up in Revelation 19. The great enemy has finally fallen in chapter 18. Then a feast is laid out, and a chorus begins to sing wonderful songs of defeat for the enemy and victory for the Christians. And then Jesus rides in. Look at this passage. I saw heaven standing open, and there before me was a white horse whose rider is called Faithful and True. With justice he judges and wages war. His eyes are like blazing fire, and on his head are many crowns. He has a name written on him that no one knows but he himself. By the way, that, that's, a, that's a way that the Semitic people say nobody can take power over him. It's, just, it's a phrase and a cultural thing. He is dressed in a robe dipped in blood, and his name is the Word of God. And we know who that is. The armies of heaven were following him, riding on white horses and dressed in fine linen, white and clean, coming out of his mouth as a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. He will rule them with an iron scepter. He treads the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh, he has this name written, King of Kings, Lord of Lords. And I saw an angel standing in the sun who cried with a loud voice to all the birds flying in midair, Come, gather for the great supper of God so that you may eat the flesh of kings, generals, and the mighty, of horses and their riders, of the flesh of all people, free and slave, great and small. Then I saw the beast and the kings of earth and their armies gathered together to wage war against the rider on the horse and his army. But the beast was captured. And with it, the false prophet who had performed signs on its behalf. With these signs, he had deluded those who had received the mark of the beast and worshipped its image. The two of them were thrown alive into the fiery lake of burning sulfur. The rest were killed with the sword coming out of the mouth of the rider of the horse. And all the birds gorged themselves on their flesh. That's an interesting picture for a November Sunday morning, isn't it? But it's a, it's a picture of victory, not over earthly enemies, but over the beast behind them. The people we often declare as our enemies are not our enemies. They may be prisoners of our enemies. They may be under the influence of our enemies. But our enemies are not flesh and blood. Our enemies are principalities and powers and those forces of the air that our king, the king of kings, will destroy and has destroyed time after time after time. We just have to decide to trust him this time. Jesus did not ride in before his purpose was accomplished, before his people were ready, and the world was arranged just right. Jesus took the prayers of his people and hurled the answer back, bringing the world's order to ruin. Take a look at chapter 8, verses 1 through 5. When he opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about half an hour. 
And I saw the seven angels who stood before God, and seven trumpets were given to them. Another angel who had a golden censer came and stood at the altar. He was given much incense to offer with the prayers of all God's people. That's our prayers going up on the golden altar in front of the throne. The smoke of the incense, together with the prayers of God's people, went up before God from the angel's hand. The angel took the censer, that's your prayers, filled it with fire from the altar of God and hurled it upon the earth. And there came peals of thunder, rumblings, flashings of lightning, and an earthquake. Now aren't you glad you've come to a pre-in church? You want to change the world? Love God, love one another, and pray. That's what you've got. Those are your weapons. God will take them and make a bigger weapon out of them. You know, others have claimed to be who Jesus really is. Artaxerxes claimed in Ezra chapter 7 and verse 12 that he was king of kings. Anybody here even know what Artaxerxes looks like? Well, now he looks like dirt, but what he looked like at the time? No, he's not famous. He's not well known. We don't name our children Artaxerxes. He's gone. The coin, when Jesus said, whose image is on that coin? And they said, Caesar. On that coin would have said, King of Kings, Savior. Jesus says, go ahead and give that to him. Let him have it. But that doesn't mean he's the real King of Kings. Caesar's gone. So are all of the Caesars. Jesus is the true king over all kings. De jure, now, means by law, now. And one day, de facto, in reality. Take a look at chapter 11, verse 15. The seventh angel sounded his trumpet, and there were loud voices in heaven which said, The kingdom of our Lord has become the kingdom of, I'm sorry, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Messiah and he will reign forever and ever. We have a king. We need no other. Yes, we may be facing some economic disorder, Islamic radicalism, other societal breakdowns, confusion over bathrooms, wars. Everything's not a crisis, people. Have you ever wondered why God hasn't just ridden in and, and stopped it all? There's a reason. He isn't panicked. We're panicked. We, do you remember when you were in a car when you were a kid? You'd see a sign for an ice cream store or something. Can we have ice cream? And your parents would say, in a bit. And you, you thought that meant never, ever. Would you ever have ice cream again? Ice cream was gone. It had been removed from your life. You panicked. Or you would say, are we there yet? And they would say, no, it's going to be a couple of hours. You had no idea what that meant, but you assumed that meant imprisonment forever in a back seat. We go to God panicked. But the truth of the matter is Jesus is writing. He is the king. And he's not panicked. I must admit I shake my head. When I think of 18-year-olds, Brother Jimmy, who stormed Normandy and defeated evil, and now we have 18 and 19-year-olds that need safe spaces and puppies, 
because something didn't happen that they liked. We may never have to storm Normandy. We may never have to fight another rear guard action on the Ho Chi Minh Trail. We may never be herded into concentration camps. But every single one of us are going to have to face down the little kings that are trying to run our lives. Whether those come from society or from within our own lust. Be aware, not every king has a big territory. Territory for those colonists in the room. Not a big territory. For example, uh, Abraham was called a king who fought five kings. All of those kings may have had 20 or 30 people each. They were called kings. There can be a bunch of little kings yammering in our heads. The little kings that terrorize us, who eat up our time. Sometimes we even recharge them at night and put them in our pockets to carry them around. They erode our effectiveness. Or the little kings might be people who live rent-free in our head, or corporations, or our fears, our money, our time, our TV, the internet. None of these are true kings. But we often act like they were de facto the true kings of our lives. God calls us to make a promise. Stay faithful to the true king, and he will crown us with him. Take a look at this out of Isaiah. For Zion's sake, I will not keep silent. For Jerusalem's sake, I will not remain quiet. Till her vindication shines out like the dawn, her salvation like a blazing torch, the nations will see your vindication and all kings your glory. You will be called by a new name that the mouth of the Lord will bestow. You will be a crown of splendor in the Lord's hand a royal diadem in the hand of your God. You're, you're going to win, so just get over it and don't be afraid anymore. You've heard me say so many times to you that fear is not an option. Love is never optional. The reason fear is not an option is because we've seen this play before. Some people like to watch the same movies five, six times. I, I think I understand why, but at the same time, you know it's going to happen, right? I never went to see the movie Titanic. People kept saying, oh, you've got to go. I said, not really. I know how it ends. Um, I, I read a book. You know, I, I didn't want to spoil it for him, but... And besides, I saw clips of it later. There was plenty of room on that board for Jack. Rose is just selfish. I, I don't understand the concept. <laughs> really, do some, do some math. There was room for three Jacks on that thing. Anyway, the point I'm trying to say is this. Wouldn't it be silly to watch the same movie five or six or seven times and always be wondering how it's going to turn out this time? We know how this is going to turn out. The only question is, will you be on the right team when it does? Will you be bowing the right direction when the king comes? Would you stand with me, please? And Mark, I'll let you come on back up. Oh, from the other direction. Way to throw me off. See, I didn't know that was going to happen. <laughs> 
but if it happened again, I would. Um, this week, your admonition is this. Identify the little kings that are running your life. And it's time to discard them. It's time to put them in their place. Can you this week remind yourself at every turn that there is a king who are high, that is higher than they are? Can you watch the news and read the newspapers and enter your election booths from now on with the full knowledge that there is a true king of kings who is above all and will still be there when this is all calmed down, gone, and forgotten? You are not just a child of a king. You are a child of the king. Shine for the king and bow only to him.